0: Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway.
1: Talking of the flu, just a word to begin to... it going. I remember when I first heard about the great flu of 1918-1919, I was at the dinner table in my grandfather's house, I must have been eight or nine, and there was some kind of flu epidemic on at the time, and my grandfather was one of those very opinionated old men who thought, who was constantly deploring the softness of modern life and modern youth, and he said something like, flu epidemic, you don't know the meaning of the word. And he went on to describe how he, as a young man, newly arrived in Limerick City um, in what he called the time of the great influenza. I learned later, it was 1918, 1919. He described seeing five funerals following each other up William Street in Limerick on their way to Mount St. Lawrence's Cemetery. And I suppose that image has always stayed with me over the years although I suspected for a while it might have been exaggerated because he wasn't above telling a tall tale but no it was it has been corroborated since then by accounts of um, scenes in Glasnevin in Dublin and so on and then when I first heard about Covid I suppose I was like a lot of people sitting in my front room with the news on hearing about something happening in a faraway country and thinking, oh, God, the poor Chinese, and never really thinking it was going to come to our shores. And before we knew it, we had those very frightening images of the army trucks bringing the coffins for burial in Italy. And I was reminded again of of, of my grandfather's story. So bringing us back to the beginning of the pandemic, I suppose, what I want to... My first topic here today, and I'd like both people to talk about I'll start with Ida because it's chronologically how the story broke and built how did people apprehend the pandemic the flu pandemic of 1918-19 when it started we all know with COVID and Fergal will talk about that in a moment that there was a lot of maybe misinformation with the best will in the world there was myth and so on what was it like Ida when the story when, when the world came out first
2: when this story began to break here um you know, we saw the stories, the news stories coming from Wuhan, the fears that it had spread further and then gradually it got geographically closer to us. I was immediately struck by how parallel the stories were because a lot of the sources that I looked at were newspapers and I, the newspaper coverage is something I studied intensely uh, because the sources were very rich from it because there was a very um, good press around in 1918, 1919, very uh, robust and strong international and domestic press here as well. Our our, uh, regional and national newspapers both covered it extensively, particularly in the areas where it it was. So they would be talking constantly, even in the local press in Ireland, about, um, you know, that they say this, this disease which is affecting the armies at the moment. Um, or, you know, they tell me that De Beers has shut down at the moment or they, that the Canadian uh, stock exchange can't operate as usual because it's been so hit by the flu or that crops in some country. Um, so it was very similar, you know, that the way sh- society shut down, uh, but then in a kind of natural way. Whereas here we had a more uh, conscious lockdown because we were able to transmit mm-hmm. to people more quickly through the um, broadcast media. Uh, about what was happening so it was very similar you know the the echoes were very strong and very quick with it I think as a news story.
1: And you know where people were saying it had started in of course that was all later it had started in Kansas it started in your own theory is that it began in the trenches?
2: Yeah I think so there's two major origin theories with, with what's of course misnamed as the Spanish glue because people say that um uh, the, the, Alfonso the Thirteenth, the King of Spain, and about three thousand of his courtiers got it, and that was reported in the Spanish uh, press. But they weren't involved in the war, so that they had no newspaper censorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Ireland, there wasn't much censorship of the newspaper uh, uh, in the newspapers of the flu, but there was quite a lot in, in other countries, including Scotland. Actually, the, 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 mm-hmm. there's very little coverage of the flu in the Scottish press, yeah. which has impeded the development of Scottish mm-hmm. history of the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, but people weren't reporting what was happening to the combatant armies and they were already laid waste by the flu by the time uh, because they wouldn't want to give away the, the, the enemy an advantage by knowing where to attack if the uh, troops were sick in a particular area.
1: And you were saying about the proximity of animals and human beings, life yeah. in the trenches, you were living up alongside the animals you're going to be killing and something like that.
2: And they, they, they a lot of the live um, mm. Food to feed, the food to feed the army was live at that yeah. time, so you would have um, soldiers in close proximity with uh, geese and hens and pigs, all of which can be vectors of influenza. So uh, John Oxford, the virologist, his theory is that it really started in the very close, um, closely confined yeah. quarters of the trenches, whereas the, there is also a theory of course that it began in Camp Funston. very appealing theory, you know, that you can actually find Albert one Gitchell, days, patient zero, you we, know, but I think like at that, that case we um, yeah. there is an international national influenza uh, research community and uh, we would think there are earlier cases than that to be seen around the world. Right
1: and Fergal the whole story of Covid how it started or even just the origins of it Your own ideas about that, where it began, and how we here apprehended it, and how we covered it, and so on.
3: Well, it's interesting you're talking about. You know, we don't have a patient zero yet Mm -hmm. in relation. There's Mm -hmm. there's suspicions, obviously, and there's Wuhan uh, is where it started. But you'll all recall that in in mid late December, everybody was going about preparing for Christmas, preparing for a new year. Mm -hmm. No one had heard about. Uh, COVID-19 and we were only starting to get information in in very early January about the first cases coming out of Wuhan and it did seem uh, like a a distant Mm. problem uh, that they certainly Europe didn't have to worry about too much for the moment but obviously with the scale of travel it didn't take very long at all Mm -hmm. before the first cases arrived in Europe and those scenes in Italy And, and it is true I mean those visual scenes of of the trucks uh, and and people suffering really did shock people. Uh, And once it was on the shores of Europe, it was inevitable it was going to come to Ireland. Now, no one had ever heard of the National Public Health Emergency Team either. Mm -hmm. It's now probably the most famous acronym in the country. Mm -hmm. It's as well known as any other agency. Um, The individuals are national figures, Mm -hmm. their their identity is. it, it, it was I suppose it was rejuvenated. it had existed for many, many years because it was actually dealing with um, hospital acquired infections and other problems like that. but suddenly um, preparations began for the arrival of coronavirus here. They knew it was coming, and, and they were preparing for it mm. and There have been pandemic plans here in place mm. for many, many years because we 've had previous pandemics, nothing like what has been seen here, so they did prepare for it and I remember it was, it was a Saturday evening, uh, February the 29th, I was actually at home because the news broke very, very late, I think it must have been about 10 to 9 in the evening, just before the 9 o'clock news, and we got word that the first case had been identified in Ireland and it was a, a, a male, we were told, uh, from the east of the country, recently returned mm. from Italy. So. Within a few minutes we had to get on air. Now I had to do that broadcast on the phone because it just wasn't physically possible Mm -hmm. to get into RTE and at that time on that first uh, uh, case there was no one available from the Department of Health or others to be interviewed and that was probably a bit unsettling in terms of the news because uh, the way it came out at that stage it was on the phone, people were desperate for information, very worried Mm. that the first case had come and when the first cases started to emerge here, it was very little information. Uh, for reasons of confidentiality, part of that. And also, we, we didn't have the information we have now about the age, the location, mm. whether they had underlying conditions, um, so there was a lot of fear at the start uh, when those first cases came. And then we had the first death was reported. Uh, it was Mar- the Mar- March the 11th. It was an elderly woman. She had an underlying respiratory problems. and um, She died. So the first death then really brought it home to people that this uh, is a virus that is circulating, but it's also going to cause um, uh, terrible suffering in so many ways uh, for people. And I
1: remember the whole um, underlying condition that a lot of us in the early days kind of seized on that and thought, oh, thank God, I don't have an underlying condition, so I'm all right. You know, I'm just... And then it became apparent to us that actually it was affecting far more people than that. And... it was it was alarming, really. You know, so you you had to kind of, um, and there were a lot of I think myths going around as well. weren't there? Fergal? Well, there you was a sort through a lot of that.
3: Yeah, well, mainly because this was a brand new virus. No one had heard of this before, mm-hmm. and the experts were trying to get a grip on it and understand it. And obviously, experts had to come on television, had to come on radio. But there was a lack of information for them too. And on occasions, you would have experts disagreeing on certain points. I mean, the big areas of disagreement um, were, firstly, masks was one big Mm -hmm. thing. I mean, in the early stages, the National Public Health Emergency Team, and indeed the World Health Organization, weren't very convinced that wearing of masks was an absolute necessity Um, there was a medical view about it that it it might cause people to have a false sense of security that Mm -hmm. if they're if they're wearing a mask they won't do the social distancing they won't do the hand hygiene so and also there wasn't sufficient supply I don't think of masks either so if you're going to recommend or require wearing of them you'd have to make sure they're available to people And, and and in the first instance you wanted all masks obviously medical grade mask mm-hmm. to be available for the health staff who were on the front line and were heavily exposed, uh, as we know, yeah. um, uh, to the virus. Uh, but that shifted later on when the WHO came to the view that certainly for vulnerable people mm-hmm. and uh, older people and those with certain underlying conditions mm-hmm. that the wearing of a mask ID, a medical grade mask, was necessary. And then eventually, um, you know, the view from the department and then the regulations were, mm-hmm. as we see it every day now mm-hmm. in our lives, required wearing of masks. I mean other countries have moved beyond where we are. Mm. In France uh, there's a requirement to wear masks in the street. Mm. Uh, over in Lanzarote you have to wear them uh, out and about in the street in the, in, in the, in the heat. Yeah. So we haven't got to that yet but that could happen. Yeah. Uh, masks was one thing. The second issue of, of disagreement or debate was, should it be one metre, should it be two metres, mm. now, I remember this vividly because at the Department of Health press briefing on the ground it, it, they, had, they had a, a sticker saying you know, stay one to two metres, so there was a huge debate on social media and elsewhere about. Um, Well, Am I okay with one metre or must it be two metres? And then the science behind that as to whether two metres was was the absolute minimum Mm. uh, to stay away. uh, They finally settled on two metres. But that was a debating point for for weeks and weeks and weeks, again with experts arguing the toss. And when the public sees experts and people not on agreement, that Mm. causes confusion and it's it's, it's a cause for debate.
1: But I'm, I'm sort of glad at the same time that these debates are happening out in the open. You know, I'd hate there to be a party line. I'm glad, it's, it's good to see. It's, I think it's good for us to see experts disagreeing because we're kind of able... It, it, it treats us like intelligent human beings. You know, there isn't just one thing that we're told. And, of course, doctors would differ as well. And some of the cures that they had or the preventive measures, Ida back in 1918, 1919. There was quite a lot of controversy about them too, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, curiously, one of, one of the main um, medicines that was used in 1918 was quinine to reduce fever. Mm. And quinine, of course, this is, um, oh, the, the word has gone, the hydroxychloroquine, hydroxy- yeah.
3: is,
2: is also a malari- an anti-malarial medicine. So the, there were echoes of that then, then and now for, 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 for uh, doctors looking at what cures might have been used in 1918 too. Um, they, they, whiskey and brandy were really used in abundance because um, doctors really couldn't agree on the medicines. They were using things like um, a, a sleeplessness and a really bad headache were part of the feature of the flu. And so they would use um, uh, some preparation of opium mm-hmm. uh, for the sleeplessness. Um, they used um, aspirin um, to reduce the headache rather than the fever, curiously. Uh, but aspirin, of course, uh, was made by Bayer, which was a German company, and particularly in America, uh, they thought, there was a rumor went around that um, uh, Bayer had uh, infected the boxes of aspirin with the flu as part of the war methods, Whoa. which was you know, totally made up, but um, it, it, did, it did travel as a rumor.
1: That's like the myth mm-hmm. that the whole thing was grown in a laboratory in China. Do you remember that myth that was circling among the far right, kind of uh, that, that I, yeah. the COVID was? I think a lot, a lot
3: of that came out of America, and mm. and particularly yeah. out of President Trump as well. The, too. The more extreme, um, yeah. I mean, people will always look for blame somewhere. And I think it's one, it's one of the most unhelpful elements of, of an outbreak like this or a pandemic to look for blame. I mean, no one's to blame for this. And Obviously, you had the um, in the early stages uh, in Ireland the most vulnerable groups, like nursing homes yeah. um, there was a problem there mm. I, mean, it, it, I suppose it, it attacked nursing homes and they were such a vulnerable group for a number of reasons, and um, the nursing homes themselves weren't all prepared, they didn't have enough access to uh, personal protective equipment and um, staffing levels reduced or some people were out sick because they were, they were ill or, or, or didn't come into work because of fear or uh, there weren't enough, enough agency staff and the HSE was also recruiting staff that would otherwise maybe be available to nursing homes yeah. it needed to bolster its services. Mm. So there were problems there and also in the early stages the official advice was that there wasn't a need for national restrictions on visiting uh, nursing homes, no. people making visits. That did change. No. Now, the nursing homes themselves sort of announced a unilateral sort of ban on visiting, but at the Department of Health briefing mm. that evening, the official view was that was not necessary. So you had... A differing view there. Yeah, now, true. again, it's no one's fault that people become infected, yeah, yeah. And, and no one's looking to blame. There are lots of modes of transmission, and staff. A lot of staff who work in nursing homes they do share accommodation, uh, and so, it, and visitors. It will get in, but. And we also didn't realise the the scale of which this virus um, could be transmitted by people who are asymptomatic, they don't show any symptoms, Mm, up to 40% of people with uh, coronavirus don't show symptoms, and that wasn't totally understood or or seen in the medical community, so thereby there were quite a number of patients were being discharged, older people from hospital to nursing homes, to free up beds certainly in in, in hospitals but also it it was felt that they were clinically suitable to be discharged but unbeknownst to, to doctors and nurses and other staff some of those patients were infected and were being moved to nursing homes and You know an outbreak would occur.
2: One of the interesting echoes um, I found between what you're talking about now and also your own um, um, reportage on on RT was was, um, the idea of trust and the idea of creating a kind of confidence even when we don't necessarily have confidence because we don't have evidence or we didn't have evidence-based medicine on, on this on which medicine really relies until very recently and the very first article I actually wrote about it was kind of this feeling came up in me very early on, I think it was the 6th of March maybe, I wrote an article in the Irish Times about the need for uh, confidence measures that, that the governments, governments around the world really had to find a way of instilling confidence and building trust with the public so that they would get compliance for the measures. And I think one of the things that happened here, well in Wuhan the thing that happened was the building of a hospital within five days was a great local confidence instilling measure. But here I think that, that, that public effort, um, broadcast uh, which you and then other reporters would cover afterwards was a great way of uh, building trust and creating a relationship with the public over this. You well, know, because true. there wasn't. Because you have you have
3: you have faces. I mean, yeah. everyone got to know uh, and hear and see Dr. Tony Hulman, mm-hmm. the chief medical officer, and now mm-hmm. his acting successor, Dr. Ronan Glynn, and uh, Killian De Gascoon And <clears throat> the, the other issue is that. Public health is is an area that doesn't get a lot of attention or coverage because Mm. um, everyone knows their own GP Mm. because they get the personal treatment and they know particular surgeons because of an operation. But public health is a different matter because public health doctors uh, deal with population groups. They're well used to dealing with outbreaks, measles outbreaks and vaccination Mm. programs, really crucial areas like that. But they're not... They're not the front page, they weren't up to now, the front page story or the main news item, but they have become central, uh, certainly, to government advice and individually very well-known figures. Um, uh, And it's probably brought a new um, understanding of that a specialty in the profession which is still looking for consultant status um, at the moment, but this may help as well, because they've been relied upon to give steady information, I think the point you're talking about is very important, like even on the days, I remember particularly the the day when the highest number of cases was reported on one day, that was a 1068 cases, which is an astonishing figure Mm -hmm. to to give out, Um, The way it would work with these briefings is uh, you might get that information a minute before going to air. So you'd often get a sheet of paper and you'd be going to a live point. You have to get to the live point, read the figures, understand them, get some context around them. Um, But putting out a figure like that, you need to have a sense of calm about it. The other high figure day, very, very, very sad day was when 77 people uh, had died. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact was, of course, not all those deaths happened on the same day. Some of them were late reporting. And so you mm. had to explain that to people. Even now, even <clears throat> during this week, we had a, a death reported, but that goes back to June. Uh, there's some late reporting issues there. So just to get an understanding of that. And, and now when we look at it, we have much more understanding about this virus. Mm. There should be less fear. There still is anxiety, mm. but the flood of data and statistics and information you can get now mm even on the COVID app um, is amazing. It should be reassuring to people. I mean, you can look at park counties in Ireland where there's very, very few cases, tiny numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you look to the hospitals for the serious cases. So while people do get wrapped up in the daily figures, and I think that's something that we're mm-hmm. gonna move away from a bit because it doesn't tell you the story anymore, really, the daily figures. A long-term trend is what you want yeah. to look at. Two weeks of figures uh, is a very Im- important That's sense. true, as long as a wave is, is in,
2: in abeyance, but it, it becomes more important uh, as if a wave, if you know, if we come to a crest It does, again. if it
3: rises yeah. again and we see the sort of figures and that we were seeing. That's something
2: you can see very much in the 1918 um, newspapers, is that the interest in the news media rises and fails, like the war will come to prominence again. And you know that's a real sign that flu is in abeyance in the community. And mm-hmm. then again, in October 1918, when it's it comes in the second wave um, in Ireland, you know, it's back at, at the top of the news again, even though the war is quite strong, obviously, it, it, it's coming to its dying day. Can I
1: ask, um, Fergal, you mentioned there about how the hitherto, I suppose, unglamorous figures of the public health doctors, the preventive medicine people, um, How they come to the fore in this crisis and how we we, we know them all now and how how good that is. Did something similar happen in 1918-19? Oh yes. I mean there was Sir Charles Cameron of course but there were a few other figures too but weren't the doctors kind of badly treated as well?
2: Um, Well In 1918-19, the the, the doctors had been running a long, uh, there was a long running fight um, with um, the local government board for Ireland to pay them decent wages and they hadn't, they had really bad uh, um, terms and conditions and there were operate each um, poor law union would, would decide the pay for the doctors under their control and the flu actually gave them a bargaining power. that they'd never had before, Mm -hmm. Uh, so they were able to negotiate. But during the, the, the peak weeks of the flu, As doctor, a doctor was very much part of the community then because Mm. they would be in the local dispensaries in each small town and then, of course, in um, the poor law um, infirmaries as well. Mm. And they were really running the show. And about 70% of the population of Ireland then uh, really had free medicine under the dispensary doctors. doctors. Uh, But the doctors weren't well paid. uh, They had huge areas under their control. Um, I can see uh, evidence of doctors going to houses at three or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, there was one doctor, Dr. Rafferty in Bray, who at the peak um, weeks of the epidemic, he was treating um, maybe 500 patients a day. And, you know, the phenomenon of trying to do something like that is, is, is just huge. And a one-man operation, essentially. You know, you're going around to visiting all these houses. There was 100,000 extra home visits by doctors uh, from the poor law, uh, the poor law dispensary doctors Mm. in the the flu year, which is essentially April 1918 to April 1990. Uh, But they did, some doctors even died because they had no pensions, they they died in, in the, I've forgotten the word, the workhouse. In the workhouses. In the workhouses, yeah, workhouses, yeah. 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 Some isn't, that, like
3: that. isn't it interesting that, uh, yeah. when you compare what you're talking about there to what happened here? There were coronavirus. I mean, a distance was being, was put between GPs for understandable reasons yeah. and patients. There, there were telephone consultations, yeah. there was video consultations. Um, uh, so the doctors
2: got constantly sick in 1918 because they were dealing very much with the public. Some of them died, some of them went out of action, never came back to work again uh, because they suffered long term illnesses. But the, the, because also the other issue was that there were so many doctors away at the war. There mm-hmm. was a shortage of doctors and a lot of the doctors were older, of course, which would leave them more vulnerable to uh, to flu as well. Uh, but. The locums actually um, by the during the peak weeks, they got higher and higher fees all the time, and uh, you know a fee that might have been say uh, a guinea at the beginning could have been five guineas for a week at the end of the, of, of the flu yes. they, so they, they really the fact that they were getting sick meant there was less expertise and um, people could charge higher fees all the time.
1: And of course you know as you say there Purgle, people. Are, people go to the doctor for other reasons and I remember you know ringing somebody having a telephone consultation the doctors obviously in 1918-19 didn't have that um, no. option but both of you when I was talking to you you both brought up points about mortality from other causes which mm. I thought was fascinating and there's, in your book, for example, Ida, you, you make a point that for some people, the flu, for some very poor, very, very beaten down people at that time, the flu was just one of another of fatal and lethal things that could happen to you and your family. And that just the flu in 1918-19... Does it replace any other diseases? Does it elbow them out
2: of the way? Or is it just one other? I think what we'd call is that it, that it reap early for some diseases. So people, like you see the numbers for TB follow, fall the following year. Numbers of deaths from TB fall the following year because the, the people who might have died the following year have died earlier than they, they would have otherwise. And the same with um, things like heart disease as well. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell um, whether it's, the flu or the pneumonias that often came with it that killed them you know d- 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 does it kill vulnerable people quicker mm-hmm. or not but it also hit um, very strong young previously healthy people and fell them and they were their real surprise cohort in, in 1918 and I suppose um, early on in this we thought that wasn't going to be the story here at all here uh, because it seemed to be killing mm-hmm. older people um, even if it infected younger people um, but of course the disease can't change we don't know what's going to happen with it yet we can't really count what happens in an epidemic until it's over.
3: That's true because I mean in 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 terms of I mean there have been some studies here but again we're in the middle of it. Uh, We see that the the excess deaths uh, due to Covid-19 were initially estimated uh, for the period of March, April, May at about maybe 1200, Mm -hmm. 1300. Now the Central Statistics Office has done a more recent analysis of that and it's revised the numbers downwards. So the belief at the moment is that the number of deaths that occurred, excess deaths that occurred due to this virus is between about 800 and 900. What they also found, and it's not totally understood yet, is that uh, deaths from other conditions reduced also. Probably, if you think about it, because people were self-isolating, they were at home, there were fewer accidents. Um, seems to have been fewer heart attacks, perhaps some people were less stressed at home or in the camera calm, environment of the house. but so overall uh, deaths uh, did drop. Mm-hmm. however, the health service is now seeing you know, a return of delayed conditions. Um, uh, pre-cancers uh, missed, mm-hmm. perhaps cancers delayed. So we, we don't, as you say, we don't have a full mm-hmm. picture of, of, of what's really happened. In Kildare, for example, there was a fascinating study done by the coroner for Kildare, uh, Professor Dennis Cusack, which found a six-fold increase in um, deaths um, of people in residential care institutions in nursing homes in uh, Kildare uh, over those uh, few months. Um, that's, that's quite a staggering figure.
1: Actually, Kildare, talking of Kildare, that was one of the worst hit counties. Kildare is unusual, isn't it? I mean, and you'd imagine, well, you dismiss the idea that that's necessarily because of the Corrie camp. But um, Kildare had one of the highest mortalities in um, 1918 19, didn't it, in the country? Yes, it did. And Donegal as well. We'll talk about Donegal in a moment. But And now here we are with Kildare again. And, you know, I, I very often when you look at, at that kind of crime and things as well, Kildare is, high. Kildare yeah. is sort of different, you know it's, it's unusual, I'm not offending I hope any uh, Kildare and, people. And I live in Kildare so I know, <laughs> with all due, I mean I think it's just very fascinating.
2: Yeah. Do you want to say a few words yeah. about that? Both um, of you maybe, Kildare, maybe I, I think one of the interesting things about Kildare is that it has a, a great connectivity to the establishment mm. in 1918 1919 to the government because a lot, of, a lot of the higher ups would have lived out in Kildare, so if, um, a paper like the Kildare Observer, which is a new newspaper of the elite Mm. you know it's it's really what we call a castle paper and uh, so that there is that connectivity but also it's very close uh, rail and canal links uh, to Dublin that's another reason
3: Mm -hmm.
2: but one of the things I was always trying to emphasize, um, I felt um, a bit like a witch sometimes um, during the, particularly the early weeks of, of what was going on here with with COVID-19, because, you know, from the research, you could kind of predict what was going to happen next or have a reasonable mm. guesstimate at it. and. Um, I was saying that anything unusual that happens like I I was actually onto the water authorities and said please don't close down because anything unusual that happens in 1918-1919 caused uh, deaths to rise and one of the reasons I argued that um, Kildare had a higher rate of um, death it had the highest county rate of death in uh, the 1918 flu. Uh, was uh, because um, there was limited water supply to the town of nace in particular. And also because the gas company, which supplied power Mm -hmm. and um, heat and light to the town, uh, uh, they were really badly affected by the flu. And of course, the other thing being that the gas company uh, found it hard um, to get supplies because gas came from coal. Mm. and coal was in really short supply as well. So uh, the newspapers had to run with blank pages. Uh, uh, At certain times, uh, people had no power in NACE. Mm. So, you know, part of, uh, you you also need water to wash your hands, to provide hygiene, but to hydrate. So it's really, really important. Cook, all those
1: things. When
2: you see a black spot in the 1918 flu, it's generally caused by something like that, like a, a lack of water, a lack of power, or else perhaps a funeral, a big funeral in the region. And there was also a big funeral, um, there was a few big funerals uh, because um, not just in Kildare but in Louth in particular, I think I remember a few, um, when um, somebody in the community who might be a strong nationalist would die, they'd have a very large funeral with maybe four or five thousand people and you can imagine what that would have done.
1: Just on a little aside there, I think one of the reasons perhaps in Ireland that we don't remember the flu officially perhaps mm-hmm. as much as we could, although it's there in lore all the time, that comes across in your, in your book and it comes across in my family lore as well. It's because all of these things are happening, the time of the big Sinn Féin election 19- mm-hmm. 1918, where Sinn Féin wrote the Irish Parliamentary Party in December 1918. All the things that happened in 1918, the conscription crisis, the, uh, the, the big push, the various other things to do with the First World War, and then 1919, the first Dáil, Salahad Begg, the War of Independence, there's so much else going on, you know, that, 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 that we, we might, we can, and all this and the flu as well. But you also, before we get on to Kildare nowadays, and you also mentioned Donegal as a black spot.
2: Yeah, it's and well, it, it, it took uh, my great colleague um, um, Patricia Marsh who studied the flu in Ulster, and I, we spent a long time puzzling this out, and we thought at first it was because of seasonal labour, because mm-hmm. Scotland and uh, Donegal would have strong... Of yes. labour contacts mm-hmm. and that people might go to Scotland that somebody would die from the flu that be brought back by boat with all the family on board and that then the wake the Donegal wake would happen and that would spread it further into the community and then I got the wonderful good luck uh, somebody found me uh, Kathleen McMenamin who was then I think 107 106 years of age at that stage she died at 107 and she had lived um in Rathmullen um on Lough Swilly as a small child and her mother had been a nurse in the community or had nursed in the community. People with flu uh, during, when that happened there. And I said to her, was this the reason she said? Oh, no, she said uh, the reason I think it happened was because of the Navy being stationed in Luxville during oh, the war oh, yeah. and they were taking shelter and protecting from mm-hmm. the U-boats because these waters, the waters all around the coast were absolutely rife with U-boat yeah. activity at, uh, uh, at the time. And she said, I then started to ponder why the same thing hadn't happened in Cork, where the Americans were Mm. were based in in Queenstown or Cove. And I think the the American troops were treated on ship uh, for the most part, uh, whereas um, the British troops came into the community, she said, and were treated locally by the local doctors and things. And she said they spread it that way.
1: I wondered as yeah. well, going back to Kildare, if yeah. it, the bloodstock industry had anything to do with it either. Because Kildare nowadays, then Fergal, it was the meat factories, was it? it well, certainly, pretty much.
3: I think the proximity to Dublin as well too is, yeah. a, is a major, it is, a it's major element in the, com- the commuting that, yeah, that occurs. Yeah. And we have recently, obviously, had the meat factory, which have their own in, the difficulties there because of the closeness with which people um, mm-hmm. work, uh, sharing accommodation, the nature of the employment status. Um, it can be quite clandestine, uh, yes. quite difficult to, um, to, to identify people, and they're reluctant to uh, be interviewed uh, mostly, and you can understand that. But if you're looking, like when you look at flu now, uh, on, a, on, a, on a typical um, year in Ireland, uh, around maybe 250, 300 people will die now from influenza in this country, but on a really bad year, a really really bad year, you would see, because it takes a while to see all the numbers, you could certainly see 800 to 900 deaths from, from influenza here, mostly older people, but then of course it also does affect younger people too, and that goes back to uh, times you were talking about as well too, uh, but because there's vaccination now and uh, there's protection that can be got from it, people probably, prob- probably don't think too much uh, about mm-hmm. it or aren't mm-hmm. fearful uh, of it, uh, as, as, as much yeah. as they used to be called. because, unlike uh, coronavirus, you know, there, there's, there's a vaccination and there's treatment for influenza now, um, which makes a big difference.
1: I think we've all got a little bit blase as well about mortality. You know, we, we do feel in many ways that we're immortal, and while we're fearful in ways perhaps that people in the past weren't. It's, you know, it's extraordinary that, that, that we can be knocked off our feet, metaphorically speaking, I suppose, yeah. by, by this knowledge of a deadly virus. I, I, that's you one know. of
2: the reasons why I started doing, after I'd, I'd researched the flu, I moved on to looking at infectious diseases of childhood because I realised that um, Um, you know, when I was interviewing people, I did a lot of oral history interviews on the flu. Uh, People would also tell me that, well, you know, uh, daddy's uh, brother died of the flu, um, but he had two who died from TB and two who died from measles and two who died from diarrhea. And so I realized that there was a whole story that we haven't told in that. And one of the reasons I think why we saw uh, vaccination hesitancy begin to grow in the nineties was people had forgotten those stories. Yes. You know, and yeah. they weren't aware that, for example, in any year in the 1910s, that 20% of the mortality, 20% of the deaths, about 70,000 on the island, was of children under the age of five. And many of them were from infectious diseases of childhood, you know, That's... like whooping cough. Um, bronchitis was a huge killer pneumonia of course was a huge killer there was no vaccination you know no um antibiotics in those days um but measles think. and mumps and you know all those diseases it killed.
1: explains a lot of parenting practices of those days which might somehow otherwise seem mm. incomprehensible to us for example you know children being sent away to the country people, children being sent to their grandparents yeah the, that grandfather i was talking about when he arrived in limerick with my grandmother they they left their infant son up in rural county, Offaly, with his grandparents. And the grandparents got so fond of him, they didn't part with him for years. But the others, my aunts and uncles were, and my mother would always say, they shouldn't have left him up there. They left him up there because they were coming down to a flu-torn city. And, you know, you hear oftentimes about children in autobiographies, children being sent away and for their own protection. People and were
2: pregnant now too. Yeah. You, you know, know, you could see see, you know, whether the husband and the wife were both doctors, where the two parents were doctors. They yeah. thought for a while to send the children away, or what should they do? Should they keep them at home? Should you yeah. they send them yeah, out? Yeah, you can see because why. of course the childcare issues as but well. People
1: were you know. very aware of, of and they were aware of cleanliness as well yes. then and of washing hands and so on. They because didn't have all the things we have.
2: Bacteriology they... was the new wonder kind at that mm. stage and the rates of death from infectious diseases were dropping quite rapidly in the 1910s and 1918 would have been had the lowest rate of death from all causes at the time on record had it not been for the 1918 Wait. flu That's because we were going through what we call the epidemiological transition where you see all these rates of death from infectious diseases dropping because people are getting even the ordinary person is getting better knowledge about hygiene
1: but when, because of
2: the effective lister and caution, and you if know. you
1: read any of the little booklets that were brought out in mm. the early 20th yes. century, aimed at working-class farming Irish women mainly, and they're all—they're all—you know—you you can interpret them one way as kind of you know prescriptive literature telling women what to do, but they're all incredibly practical and doable. Yeah. Wash your hands. Open the window. Move the dung heap away from the house, and people it's implemented.
2: Scrubbed these. the table down, please.
1: Yes, and people mm-hmm. I, it kind of in, implemented these, and women, they, they took to them like ducks to water. Because mm-hmm. people are not stupid, you know, and they will, they will sort of, they will obey this. But do you think, Fergal, that we were maybe a little bit more cavalier? That it was harder to get the message across now. Now it is about those kind of things. I sometimes felt it was. Well,
3: it, it, I mean, you can get information everywhere now. So there's, there's no shortage of. Yeah, it, that's the uh, trouble. It felt, but much. there's probably too much information and it's it's genuinely confusing there is information overload and I think you know going back to the start when there was so little known Mm. so much is known even now Mm -hmm. look you're talking about vaccination Look, the big hope the WHO is saying today you know hopefully by mid year next year um, there will be a safe and effective vaccine and people would hope for that because you know in terms of vaccination for all the diseases and illnesses you've been talking about mm-hmm. as well too that's been one of the biggest progresses yeah. uh, over the years mm-hmm. and people buying in buying into um, protecting themselves and protecting others and you know we've heard so much talk about herd immunity uh, in recent months um and then the benefit obviously of vaccination whereby people who get vaccinated uh, build up protection in the whole community and you're protecting others so it will be interesting to see you know what happens with a vaccine we really don't know but hopefully that will come and then it'll be about Ramping up uh, production and it being available in Europe and available to people—that would change things, though, radically. I mean, it would change our world completely if there was a really effective vaccine that worked across all age groups. Ideally, you might find a vaccine that's excellent for certain age groups, mm-hmm. doesn't quite deliver the immunity for others. So, there's over a hundred in trials. I mean, some at very advanced stages. So. fingers crossed that it works but you do have to convince people and and talk to people about vaccination there's you're talking about vaccine uh, hesitancy we've Mm -hmm. seen it over the years too Mm -hmm. in a lot of vaccination campaigns and some controversies uh, both abroad and here resulted in a drop off in in the uptake of vaccination but I I think the shock of this uh, virus now uh, you hope and probably expect that if a vaccine is available, that there would be significant buy-in uh, to it uh, by the public.
1: That's it, yeah. and, and I was thinking as well, I mean, about the whole lockdown idea. Uh, there was controversy about lockdown. As you know, Sweden didn't implement one pretty, well, they really do. To a certain extent, but they didn't really. Their mortality rates were higher. Um, there was a belief that, you know, herd immunity would be required, or herd, not so much immunity, but And 1918-19, I know some schools were closed, I know people were Mm -hmm. discouraged. Was there ever any talk of the kind of, could there have been any talk of the kind of
2: I find that a fascinating question. And the other thing is I think we all, each region behaves according to tradition, whether in 1918 or now. Sweden didn't close down at all, didn't shut shut the schools in 1918, Mm -hmm. whereas we did here. Yeah, and we shut really? them during the peak weeks of the flu and it was one of the very first actions Sir Charles Cameron, that wonderful then 88 eight year old uh, mm-hmm. Dublin Medical Officer of Health advised on, was, was the closure of the schools, because children were believed to be super spreaders. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was kind of termed, but I suppose when I look at a super spreader in terms of a child, I think of somebody, you know, that a parent picks up and Mm -hmm. that you pass around to the next. And so Mm -hmm. it's it's easy to see how they are super spreaders when you think of them in terms of how we interact um, Mm -hmm. with children within the home. And then why that might affect that young adult Mm. age group as well. But they did, they closed down the schools. Uh, Maynooth was closed uh, for a while, the seminary. Um, Wood College uh, has very good records. I love places that have very good records. And they didn't shut, but they isolated the school and didn't let any of the staff go to funerals in the community or or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Or at least in theory, they didn't. The staff would, some of the funerals in the community were organized after dark, so they wouldn't be caught doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, they did things like um, having the sick pupils uh, fed after the uh, well pupils at two diff- different sessions, and also lowering the load of school lessons. They put on more film shows and things like that to, to and reduce games as well, mm. and tried to, of course, airing, uh, this is something we have to focus on I think a lot more now is airing buildings, they aired the buildings a lot because they shot up the windows and cold air therapy and outdoor air therapy was was considered very important in 1918 Didn't someone say
1: recently, Fergal as well, um, that when the schools go back they should not be overheated the windows
3: should be open, the fresh air should come in. I mean that is the advice, now look it's going to be difficult in the winter when we get very cold uh, air but good ventilation is Good really, ventilation, it's re- yeah, is really yeah. really mm-hmm. important and um, in terms of lockdown, I mean, I, I mean the first lockdown was also a shock to people I think uh, um, but I don't think I, there's no appetite certainly on the national public health emergency team for a national lockdown again it doesn't look like that would come but you, what you could see mm. is uh, localised or regional lockdowns I mean if, mm. if, if it came to that but, but nothing on the horizon at the moment based on the figures there at the moment, but if things, no one knows what the winter is going to bring, you're yeah. going to get the mix of yeah. influenza and colds yeah. alongside coronavirus, and which, and, which. Yeah. and which is which, all the more reason why, I mean there will be a, a strong campaign for people to get vaccinated, at children aged 2 to 12, that campaign's going to, through a nasal spray, is going to start shortly, and then older more vulnerable people, okay. <clears throat> the, the normal uh, vaccination program, and it, it will be I guess really important <clears throat> that as many people get vaccinated, to, to help doctors and other staff to, to be able to rule out pretty much that it's not influenza, it is coronavirus, because the pressure that will put on the system could be quite enormous.
2: Mm-hmm. Katrina, can I just get back to that idea about quarantine that you're raising at yes. the beginning? I'm really surprised because the concept of quarantine is like maybe five, six hundred years old, yes. uh, maybe even older, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that we have it from, from, from Italy and plague and then earlier, I think, from Persia, Um, but that we never considered quarantine for us as an island it would have seemed a very obvious thing to do in 1918 and I think the reason for that and I still have to find evidence so I'm being a bad historian here I'm speculating rather than looking at evidence uh, based I'm throwing out a question hoping somebody will find me a little shred somewhere in the war papers is that the reason we didn't do that because was because the war was at at a really critical stage and at that stage when the flu um, was beginning to emerge it looked like Germany was going to win the war Mm -hmm. and they were Escalating the U-boat uh, activity in the Irish Sea in 1917, 1918, it had forced America to get to come in, and a lot of the American air bases were in Ireland. Like the whole south coast was essentially, um, you know, littered with yeah. with American mm-hmm. air bases of different types, from uh, West Cork to Cork itself. Um, Wexford had an air base, Waterford had an air base as well, and um, you know that we were really key. That, that this American activity in Ireland was really key uh, to. Um, yeah, C- controlling Germany's efforts to win the war and I think eventually somebody is going to find me a little gem in the war office that, that, that uh, proves that theory right but I'd love if it was done sooner rather than later.
1: Well we were yeah. part of Britain administratively as well mm. you know remember the the election at which all men over 21 voted for the first time and mm. all women over 30 in December 1918 that was a British UK, Election. including Ireland, you know, and we were part of Britain and people were going over and back an awful lot, Oh yeah, like the Leinster for example, the tragedy yeah. of the Leinster and various other things that happened. Um, the boats over were plying over and back, it, it would have seen, I'd say it probably would have been against... Um, it would know, have been difficult. It would have been very it difficult did. and the other thing is, I mean, even if you take Ireland like, as a whole, rural, generally speaking, except for Donegal and parts of Kildare. Rural Ireland got away with it a little bit more, obviously, than than urban Ireland. And people were probably semi-locked down anyway, self-sufficient, providing all their own vegetables, all their their own water from a spring, um, only going into town for the tea and sugar, you know, and that. And even town, although, mind you, there were markets and fairs in the towns as well. With a but lot you see, of the life. other thing we were,
2: we were quite lucky at the time is we had, as a country, quite a lot of suppression, military suppression. Yeah. So a lot of the fairs were cancelled. Yeah,
1: and I wonder okay. if that's why, say,
2: Clare ah. had a lower um, yeah. incidence of flu. Clare escapes, even though it has a population of 100,000, escapes with, I think, 49 deaths, which is very more. low. Yeah, yeah. And I know nearly all of them. And it um, comes up as a curiosity mm-hmm. in another context as well. I'm yeah. just trying to remember.
1: It's one of the most rural counties, I think, yeah. in Ireland, uh, the, the least urbanized, you yes. know, and with longer, um, at least at that time anyway. So, and, um, but. So that's that. Yeah. I,
2: I often joke, um, probably in very bad taste, that it's to do with the Percy French song. Are you right there, Michael? Oh, you know the it was the of, efficiencies of the rest <laughs> railway that lowered the rate of death in, 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 in Clare.
1: Could, you never know. I mean, there were, but as you say, it's a rurality as well, and people, you know, not spreading as much in those areas. <laughs> I'm just wondering in the time we have left to us, talking about remembering, talk about how this will be remembered in years to come. Um, when you and Patricia Marsh and, and Katrina Foley mm. went to write about the flu of 1918 19 the newspapers were a great source. Mm. I found that as well when I was writing a bit about the flu. Um, the newspapers, the, I suppose some of the memoirs of the period, and of course you had oral evidence as well. Mm. But you also had people who, uh, as you said in your um, chapter on oral evidence, that some people that you talked to actually didn't remember the flu really it hadn't no. impinged on them but you have a fairly nowadays i'm just thinking the historian of the future will be drowning
2: in evidence. resources yeah, yeah.
1: in information yeah. not just but in images as well you know because we have images of the flu and i'm wondering about the remem- that that whole topic of how something is remembering because you said something Ida, about private remembering and public forgetting mm. that 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 you is what characterizes the 1918-1919 influenza, that it's remembered in families like, like my grandfather, like the people you spoke to. But there's a kind of a public forgetting of it, except if it comes up every so often about, you know. But I'm wondering now if with the current crisis, will we be looking at a kind of a public remembering and private forgetting? Because nowadays, we have so much of visual media does our remembering for us or
3: something. And just a few ideas it's, there if you I, want I, I mean, to address I, this. It, it, it's, it's going to be impossible for people to forget this, I think, you know, and we're not through it yet. And it's not like a hurricane or a storm where there's a start, mm. a middle and a defined end. Uh, we don't know where it's going. The, the final chapter hasn't been written on, on what's coming. We may not get a vaccine. So it, it's in some ways it's a very very strange world and of course this has touched everybody in some way no one has escaped in this country um, uh, families have lost loved ones and been unable to visit loved ones who are dying which, mm-hmm. is, which is tragic and um, the, the personal searing experience of people uh, you heard Professor uh, Ronan uh, Collins talking on television during the week that uh, he says that he's seeing quite a number of older people who feel that life may not be worth living anymore I mean yeah. that's a mm-hmm. terribly sad thing to hear because life has become so difficult and they lockdown. down
2: you know I wonder are there few of us who haven't thought that at, at some stage you know I, I live on my own and I think it's been very stressful for people who live on their own just as it has been in a different way stressful for people who live in in families because you're worried about family catching it it has and you know mm. but but everybody has had their own fears right. in this
3: and they're amplified yeah. as well, too. Yeah. And, and people yeah. uh, you know, who suffer from mental illness, being isolated, mm-hmm. being at home, unable to access services, uh, very, very difficult. They've only really got going again, mm-hmm. but there's you know, delayed access and there's limited access now. And I, I also think that because of the, um, the scale, even now today, the scale of restrictions and the scale of measures, um, in some ways, it might feel like a de facto lockdown anyway. And the reason why I say that is that uh, some people certainly that I encounter and write to me uh, feel it's too Much hassle to go out now, too much, too difficult to socialize. There's uh, there's fear there. So, even though there isn't an official lockdown, I mean, the thing I I
2: long (laughs) for is a good dinner party with far too much drink, but (laughs) in moderation, of course, (laughs) far too much in moderation. Um, but you wonder whether, like, some people argue that the reason 1918 was forgotten was because there was so much going on between so much misery between the war and the revolution and all the stress that caused, and then this even more unfair thing on top of it, which brings the war front right into the home, that that's the reason that, that it's forgotten is because people deliberately shut it out. And that is an, a, an argument that could be had. You'd wonder if we might do that with this as well. I wonder. I don't know. I mean, I
1: think the point you made about mm. the emotional aspect of it there, Fergal, is, is very, very pertinent. And the people I worried about during lockdown were the children who might have been stuck at home with with parents who were perhaps overburdened themselves and -hmm. and, and found it hard to to, to, to make, even with the best will in the world, not even to homeschool, because I think we all, children learn from their parents anyway, in an informal way, but who might have been perhaps short-tempered or, you know, the children who missed the the routine of school. And and then there were old people. I mean, one of my neighbours, whose son is in America, said to me recently, she said, I might never see him again you know, mm-hmm. and she's in her 80s. And I said, sure, of course you will. He'll be back next year or you'll be over there. But I don't know that. And it, she doesn't know that. It, know. Ma-
3: it makes you realise how precious uh, freedoms are, you know, mm-hmm. individual mm-hmm. freedoms mm-hmm. are, yes, yes. and how mm-hmm. easily in some ways they can be lost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're talking about not being able to travel, to visit mm-hmm. people and um, mm-hmm. to see people who are dying, to go down the street, to travel more miles, you know, X number of miles, yeah. things that you'd never have thought possible. Um,
2: Absolutely. Became a
3: restriction. And it, it will and has no doubt changed people's uh, perception on the world. Um, you're talking about the children going back. I, I, an amazing moment on, it was on Monday. I was after doing uh, the one o'clock television news uh, at the Department of Health. And when I was leaving the Department of Health building, just about a quarter past one, I heard a sound I hadn't heard for six months. And as I walked out the door, it was the screams of children laughing. There's Catherine McCauley Primary mm. School just beside the oh, Department oh. of Health. Mm. Yeah. And they were running around the playground and it was an amazing sound mm-hmm. because up to that, you'd never heard that. And in the depths of the lockdown, you know, there was very few people in town. Uh, the most you'd see would maybe tumbleweed coming down the, the street and um, mm-hmm. very few people around, uh, very, very quiet, eerily silent. Yeah. Um, so that was a contrast, I lovely. thought, lovely yeah. to hear. And, you know, uh, the innocence of it and also the realisation that the world has to get back, get yeah, yeah. back living yes, again. Yeah, you and can't the, remain in lockdown. You have to find some sort of balance.
2: I tell you, I can't wait to see my students again. <laughs> in whatever in the form. Flesh. <laughs> in the flesh.
3: <laughs> in the
2: lovely Carlo College. Mm.
1: I, I, I know, I, th- I think it's, um, it's quite hard on people. I think we've all discovered, some of us have discovered inner resources. Maybe we didn't know we had. Um, were they as introspective back in the day? Ida, were there people reflecting about the flu and what it had taught them? was it just a struggle for survival? Again,
2: curiously silent on that. You know, they—they yeah. d- they don't. One of the pieces I think that does reflect on it is actually the wasteland, the T. S. Eliot poem, and mm. uh, the, 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 that is written. You know, in the in the context of the flu and the war as well, and and mm-hmm. Eliot's family had the flu, yeah, and you remember. know the whole bleakness of society and everything. And I uh, yeah. think it's a very powerful poem when you look back and see it in, in that context. I must have uh, reflect, it, it. It. you know, reflect. Yeah. But but I, I think. There was a different attitude, Katrina. We weren't, um, what would you call, a declarative society. And people were supposed to be stoic. They were. They didn't talk about things like suicide or, you know, bereavements. They would offer it up and uh, treat it in a different way and get on with it. And I think that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, it it was a way of coping.
1: Yeah, whereas our way of coping now is to to be thinking about it and to be... Mm. So anything else... Either of you would like to add to the discussion about anything we've talked about? Well, I, I mean, minutes? look,
3: we're, 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 we're still going through this at the moment, we don't, and we don't know uh, what the outcome is going to be. You have to try and remain hopeful. I think this is mm. the most important thing mm. to, the, you know, the, to the depths, of the pain that people are feeling. You see it in social media and um, people finding it very difficult, very distressing, very lonely at times, unsure of where it's heading. And, and, and the one thing is no one can tell us, no one can really tell us what's coming next where it is, uh, but we, ha- we have better information now. People are armed with and the public health advice as well too. I to think follow. We,
2: we can trust, and I've been looking enough to irrigate on a group um, of uh, doctors and other healthcare professionals um, set up by Professor Professor O'Shea O'Connell down in in, in Cork uh, to share information fast. And one of the things I've been struck on it it, by, and again, there are parallels with 1918, is the resourcefulness of doctors and how amazing they were when they didn't have what they're trained to do, rely on evidence-based medicine, that they were going out and saying, what can we do? Where can we find good, reliable information from? How can we inform ourselves about this? And you can see, I think, I don't know whether it's fair to say now is that they they have gained. They're not as uh, they're slightly calmer about it now, I think, than they were before. Provided we can keep the numbers low, that they're being able to treat it better in hospitals, they have better. Um, knowledge of what's needed to do. And that happened in the flu in 1918 too. They got more confident about uh, the treatments that they were using
3: because sharing knowledge is key to everything. Yes, they have. I mean, the the, the big debate was to eliminate it, suppress it, Mm -hmm. uh, kill it off. Um, But I think there seems to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, living with this, uh, with the lowest numbers that can possibly be achieved appears to be the strategy to get us mm. to a point where there are certainly better uh, real treatments mm. and then a vaccine seems to be the current position. I don't think there's there doesn't seem to be any uh, groundswell support uh, amongst the health officials for the zero Covid island I- mm. uh, approach mm-hmm. where you absolutely bring it down to zero cases mm-hmm. now you have to have to implement qu- quite significant measures to get that and we're a very porous country we've got the border as well too. It seems difficult to do that here, and the one issue like travel hasn 't mm-hmm. has been kind of left be the number of cases from travel that we're told appear to be quite small. I think it might be two or three percent, so it, yeah. it is it is it is low ish so um, but I, I think that appears to be the strategy for the for the foreseeable future in as much as you can foresee the future
1: mm-hmm. and I suppose just to wind up, maybe we have to hold on to hope we have to if we can learn from the lessons of the past and COVID, the virus seems to be getting a little less harmful, a little less virulent, but somebody said to me that, that, you know, it'll be a very foolish virus that keeps on killing their hosts. So, you know, we have to kind of watch out for the mild versions of it as well. Um, I think on that note, perhaps we, we could finish up this session. And thank you, Ida, and thank you, Fergal, both of you.
0: Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.